0: Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins Vampire. So we have a little problem here at Ruins Vampire HQ. It seems producer Sean has run out of the high-grade producer chow that I have been feeding him. Now, sure, I could go out and get the cheap stuff, but I find the premium product gives him a little more energy and keeps his beard nice and shiny. So if you want to help this project and keep Sean's bowl filled, you can find copies of the entire Ruins of Empire series available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can follow along with the podcast, and it helps pay bills around these parts. And trust me, you're not going to want to clean his cage if I have to go for the bargain brand. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, Book 2 of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Chapter 15 The Brazilian purges were seen as brutal and terrifying by most Brazilian citizens. But in the world beyond, they were seen as proof that governments could stand up against toxic corporate influence. In the spring of 2094, riots exploded all over the world. First in the various provinces of the African Union, the Russian Federation, and Southeast Asia, but later in the Arabic Caliphates, the European Union, and even the United States. Hastily elected revolutionary governments followed Adriana's example and started to rid their countries of the multinational corporate influence. From the Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff Althea followed the Arenha, her entourage, and the baby through the city. She soon found herself on the same street, along which Celia brought them into Cytherea a few hours ago. All the while, Althea stayed within the crowds as much as possible, leaving plenty of room between her and the Arenha. Once they neared the edge of the city, the crowds thinned, and she was forced to make her way forward by darting behind the archways that lined the street when she thought nobody was looking. Once beyond the gate, Althea hid behind boulders and rocky outcroppings to stay out of sight. Sweat poured from her face, and each breath felt like she was sucking air from the top of a furnace. She checked her Eros computer tied into her medical regulator. Her core temperature was climbing. At this rate, she would soon be in danger of heat stroke, or worse. But she continued to follow, pushed forward by intense curiosity and no small amount of delirium from the heat. In the distance, she saw the Arenha stop at a stone slab. It could have been any number of large rocks that littered the landscape, But this one had been cut and sanded down to a tabletop, like a desolate altar in the middle of the most inhospitable place she had ever been. Althea slumped next to a rock and wiped the sweat pouring off her head. She might as well wipe a waterfall dry. She took a couple deep breaths of stifling hot air and peered over her cover. The Areinha stood on the opposite side of the stone slab from where Althea watched and held the wailing baby in her arms. Its cries were the only sound in this deathly quiet place. Althea watched as the Scytherian ruler turned the baby over in her hands, as if inspecting every part of the child. All the while, he continued to cry. After a few minutes of this, the arin appeared to come to a conclusion and lay the child down on the stone slab. Althea gripped the rock so hard she could feel the sharp corners cutting into her skin. A part of her knew what she was seeing, but she didn't want to believe it. And yet, it all made horrifying sense. The terrified woman back at the fountain of the Salah. The look of terror on the face of the woman who just gave birth. Even the physical perfection of the cytherians It seemed wrong, because it was wrong. There was only one way to assure that every person was perfect, strong, and beautiful. And that was infanticide. The Arén looked down at the child for a few moments. She might have said a few words. It was hard to tell from where Althea stood. After that, she, her advisors, and her soldiers walked away. Althea ducked behind the rock and covered her face with her hands. Tears and sweat ran down her face, and she had to bite down on the flesh of her hand to keep from screaming. In the distance, she could hear the baby's crying. It grew louder and more desperate, as if he knew that he was being left for dead. She shifted her position and crept to the other side to remain hidden behind the rock as the Arenha and the others marched past her back to the city. When she was sure they were far enough away, she sprinted across the baked ground and ducked behind the slab of rock. She looked back toward the city and, satisfied that she was alone, stood up. They had stuck some sort of paper underneath the infant, with some Scytherian words across it. That was the only protection he had from the searing heat. Althea tossed off the brown robe and picked up the child. The paper blew away until it was caught on the face of a nearby rock. Now, alone with the baby in that hellish landscape, she finally stopped trying to hold back the tears. So this was the big secret. How do you make an entire civilization of perfect, beautiful people? You toss out everyone who doesn't fit. You throw out anyone that's sickly or weak deformed or blemished. Althea stood holding the child to her chest. When she could stop crying, she tried to calm the baby. It's okay now, little one, she whispered. You'll be fine. Nobody's going to hurt you. If anything, the baby cried louder. Not that she could blame him. She didn't have the slightest idea of what to do either. Before she could piece together a rudimentary plan, she heard footsteps coming from behind, distant but getting closer. Not this one, she thought to herself. She held the child tight to her chest and ran back toward the city. <music> Celia brought Isra back into the Sala Grande and led her into a room deep in the interior. There they sat with several other Cytherian citizens, mostly older, and waited. Why have you brought me here? asked Isra, leaning close. Celia straightened up. Arenha Isabel wishes to begin talking about the future of Venus and Earth immediately after this concerto. She also believed that you would find it interesting. Isra took in her surroundings. The room was dimly lit. There were no windows anywhere. All the light came from three small open flames. Two burned on broad concave basins on either side of a silver throne and the third in an open hearth in the center. Several iron rods hung over the side of the basins on either side of the throne with one end in the center. Isra could only guess at their purpose. Smoke escaped through a hole in the top of the dome ceiling that was so high Easter could barely make it out in the dark haze. The hole served a second purpose as well, a single ray of light cut through the thick wisps of smoke and landed on the empty silver throne. Besides the audience seated on wooden benches, there were also twenty other women sitting on wooden chairs on either side of the throne. They were nowhere near as lavish or extravagant, but Easter saw just enough polished wood and engravings to know they weren't without their craftsmanship either. They were perched on three separate tiers and made Isra think of a jury on earth. If that were true, however, Isra had no desire for them to hear a trial that involved her. Their faces were nothing but hard glares among the flickering lights and shadows. They were all older women, elders of the city, and they gave off an air of matronly disapproval. Where is the Arinha? asked Isra. The emissary continued to look straight ahead. She will be here soon. She had other business in the city. The people require much of their Arin They waited for several more minutes before Isabel finally arrived. She breezed into the courtroom without a single word, acknowledging the small crowd that had been waiting there. Her white robe flowed around her, and she took her seat on the silver throne, bathed in the beam of light from the ceiling. It was as if a goddess herself graced them with her presence, as she took her rightful seat of judgment, while two soldiers stood at attention near the flaming basins. Isra looked again at the open flames, the hard looks of the other women, and graceful, beautiful Arena Isabel a Scytherian's only hope for mercy in a dark and evil world. At least, that's what Isra assumed the theatrics were meant to convey. A young man standing at attention in full military dress ran the proceedings. His bronze chestplate and shield were polished to the point where they nearly became additional sources of light on their own. He called a name, and a man stood up from the benches near where Isra sat. He marched up to the edge of the hearth and knelt before the arena said Isabel, her words echoing off the stone walls like the voice of judgment itself. This is your third appearance before the Conselho. You have, once again, failed to provide the grain the people of Cytheria require from you. Conselho has been merciful twice in the past. Tell us why we should be merciful once again. The man kneeling before the assembly looked different from most of the Cytherian men Isra had run into. For one, he just looked old. Common sense dictated that Cytherians aged just like anyone else— But the Areenha, for example, wore her age like another accessory to her beauty. This man's face looked like a worn saddlebag. She could almost hear his joints popping as he knelt by the hearth and wondered if he would be able to get back up. Still, there was a strange mix of defiance and fear in his face. He looked like a man who had seen many battles in his past, but was looking at the one that would finally do him in. The farmer paused as if trying to gather his thoughts. Then he cleared his throat and answered, Once again... "'I beg the forgiveness of this Consejo and the Arinha. "'In truth, I do not have the people to properly work this land I was given.' "'One of the women on the middle tier and to the left of Isabel stood up. "'Estefania, mother of seven citizens, if memory serves, "'that was the reason you gave the last time you stood before us. "'Furthermore, I believe we found twenty occulto workers "'who agreed to help you in the field. "'Is all that I have said correct?' "'It is correct, honoured woman,' said the farmer, still kneeling by the hearth. "'And what happened to them?' The man's reply contained a touch of panic. Nicalo, the owner of the farm next to mine, he steals my occulto from me. He claims to provide more food, better bunks. Another woman stood up, this time to Isabel's right, and interrupted him. Lorena, mother of twelve citizens, you have told us this before. But what would you have us do? colto are not citizens, but neither are they slaves. They must work, but they choose for whom they work. That is what he claims, repeated Raimundo, But he speaks lies. He forces his occulto to vandalize my farms and terrorize my workers. They are taunted, beaten, and forced to leave my farm and work for him. There is no honor with him. A third elder woman stood up. Celia, mother of nine citizens, that is a serious claim. Do you have any proof of this crime? The farmer breathed deeply. I do not, honored ladies. My information comes from occulto, who has stayed with me despite the danger. Nicalo has coveted my land since we were discharged together from service. He violates the sacred trust between Scytherian citizens. Another woman stood. Ida, mother of four citizens, what I understand, if what you claim is true, is that you cannot protect your workers from relative hooliganism. How, then, can we trust you to defend against Corsario? Have you lost the will to fight for Scytheria in your old age? Isra watched the man's face. His jaw clenched and his eyes darted around the room with wild speed. He had the look of a trapped animal, looking for the one opening that would allow him to survive a precious few minutes. Finally, he closed his eyes. That is not my claim, Honored Lady. I simply say that my neighbor... The first woman spoke again. is not on trial today. It is you and you alone. Is it your claim that you cannot defend your farm? The man's voice cracked with fear. I can defend it. I will defend it. I need soldiers and workers. Clarissa, mother of five citizens, said yet another woman standing up. You need soldiers now, soldiers and workers. Perhaps Cytheria would be better served we let your neighbor have your lands. From there it devolved into a volley of abuse. Ramundo, the farmer, just knelt by the hearth with his head lowered. The light from the flames flickered across a face resigned to defeat. As another woman rose to condemn the man, Isabel raised her hand. The woman immediately sat down, and the room fell silent to wait for the Arinha's words. I have heard enough. Very soon the sun will set and not rise for many months. We have shown mercy on two previous occasions— Cytheria needs her farms to feed her people. Therefore, I make the following decree. Isabel paused as if to let the tension build. Isra noticed the accused, with his head still bowed in front of the fire, sneak a couple of glances toward the soldiers standing by the basins on either side of Isabel, as if waiting for them to make a move. She took in the entire scene and realized that this court, like all of Cytherian society, danced to the music that was the Areinha herself, the condemned man, taunted and humiliated, could be lifted up by the grace of the goddess bathed in the beam of light. After last night's provocaio, there is an excess of oculto. I will recommend them to your service. Conselho will also look into the practices of your neighbor. If any crime against Cytherea is found, he shall appear before us. In return, you will meet your next quota. How does Conselho respond? There wasn't even a discussion. A woman in the front stood up and, as automatic as reading from a script, said, We agree, Arinha. Riomundo, do you understand these terms? said Isabel. Unlike Isra, the farmer was surprised. More than that, he looked like a man who was just yanked from the edge of the volcano. He looked up at Isabel with complete adoration. Yes, Arinha, I do. And I will do as you ask of me. I will not fail my Arinha. The farmer stood up, bowed to the women, and left to tend to his farm. That was very merciful of the Arenha, Isra commented to Celia. This surprises me. Why would that surprise you? Celia responded coldly. The Arenha loves her people. She shows them mercy out of love. That farm you showed me, said Isra, it was completely destroyed. If the man cannot defend his land, the same could happen to him. Another farm could be destroyed. Can Cytherea afford such mercy? Celia said nothing at first, as if thinking of an answer, but Isra got the same nagging prick on the back of her neck that she felt at the farm. She sensed that the emissary was not trying to think of an answer so much as the correct lie. The Arinha is wise. She knows when to show mercy and when to show strength. But perhaps you may ask her yourself after a concerto is completed. Another man knelt before the hearth to face judgment, and Isra glanced up at the Arinha seated in her silver throne. For an instant their eyes met. In the moment, in that brief look, Isra confirmed her suspicion. Everything in Cytherea moved according to the Arenha's plan, though Isra had yet to figure out what her team's role was. It was getting late by the time Althea returned. The light barely changed, but there were far fewer people moving through the streets and doors and windows were shuttered tight. There was a comfort in that, she thought as she bounced the baby in her arms trying to calm him. A few Scytherians still making their way home shot her some suspicious glances, but nobody seemed inclined to interfere. She looked around trying to decide what to do next. She considered returning the baby to his mother, but realized the Arenha would almost certainly remove the child again. Althea shifted the baby and checked her Eros computer. Throughout most of the day, Vago had been on the outskirts of the city, but he had recently returned to the house near the Sala Grande. Althea assumed it was the same house as last night, which meant he wasn't alone. She really didn't want to catch Vago in the second sexual free-for-all in as many nights, but this qualified as an emergency. Vago, for all of his faults, was useful in an emergency. Althea banged on the wooden door as hard as she could with her one free hand while the baby screamed in her ear. She heard some loud, muffled cursing from inside and, a few moments later, Vago opened the door wearing nothing but his pants. Damn God dang, Althea, said Vago, launching into his Martian curse words. This had better be good and cheer again, yuck, yay, that's a baby. Well identified, Vago, said Althea, straining to talk above the baby's crying, and you would do well to watch your mouth in front of him. Why do you have a baby, Althea? It's a long story. Can we talk? Vago looked down at the child Althea bounced in her arms and back up at her. She would have gotten a less incredulous look if she showed up with a green alien in her arms, announced that she had named it Forceps, and that she believed it was the new messiah. Finally, Vago said, Just a sec, and went back inside. He came out a few minutes later, fully dressed and visibly annoyed. He turned back, leaned through the open door and said something in Scytherian that sounded like a series of apologies. He slammed the door and looked at the baby, still crying and squirming in Althea's arms. For a moment, neither of them talked. They just looked down at the infant. For Althea, it was the first moment she'd had to try and get a grasp of her situation. Apparently, Vega wasn't doing any better with it. The wailing of the baby echoed through the streets as clear as any alarm. Vega rubbed his ear. Why'd set of lungs on that kid? Althea bounced the baby in her arms. He's probably hungry. He was born a few hours ago and has had nothing. We Need to find a way to feed him. Yeah, okay, well, before you we run off together with our Venetian love child, you want to tell me where you got him? Althea stared him straight in the eye to try to make the seriousness of this situation concrete. They were going to kill him, Vago. I saw it. They took him out to the wastelands and just left him on a rock to die. I see, said Vago, with more nonchalance than Althea thought was necessary. Who exactly? The Arena. Did she see you? No, I kept out of sight. Vago ran his hand down his cue. And once they were gone, you what, grabbed the kid? Just decided to help yourself? This don't have some weird psychological thing to do with us, does it? Althea's mouth gaped open. Us? What the bloody hell does anything between you and me have to do with this place? Do you think I'm manufacturing this? That I went and stole a baby so I could... I I don't even know what. I don't care what you do here or who you do it with. She held the baby close and pressed her cheek against his head. A few tears ran down her face. I couldn't just leave him there. In that heat with no food and no clothing, he was just born. He wouldn't last an hour. Vago cleared his throat, as if swallowing some emotion of his own. Let's not jump to conclusions now. The Cytherians might have a ritual we don't know about, some kind of rite of passage. You know, on Mars when a baby is born. Althea glared at him. Don't you bloody well do this again, Vago. You can rationalize, accept, or flat-out ignore every horrid thing about this society, but there's no getting away from this. Look at this city. Everyone is in perfect physical condition, and you want to know why. Because they throw out anyone that isn't perfect. That is the reality. This has nothing to do with culture, ritual, or anything else. Vago, it's infanticide. Worse than that, it's infanticide by exposure. Probably so the child will die and they can wash their hands of it. So go ahead. Tell me why that is okay. Althea stared Vago directly in the eye, silently promising all manner of terrible things she would visit on him if he insisted on arguing. For a moment he looked as if he might try anyway and thought the better of it. Fine, said Vago, pulling up his sleeve to activate his Eros. We need to find Isra. Althea's eyes narrowed. Isra, why would you? Now it was Vago's turn to cut her off. What exactly do you want me to do, Althea? He barked. Storm the gates, hold the whole Cytherian army at bay while you go after Isabel. Damn it, Althea! This is a diplomatic mission, so we deal with this all diplomatic-like. We find Isra and we get an audience with the Ha. If this is really what it looks like, then we deal with it, okay? Althea nodded. Okay. Vega went back to his computer and locked onto Isra's signal. Looks like she's in the Salar Grand. Come on, he said, waving for Althea to follow him back down the road. She fell into step behind him. Despite all that was going on, Althea had to smile. It's funny to hear you preaching diplomacy, said Althea. You're running around half mad with a baby, you found. Don't think this is the time to start accusing people of acting funny, said Vago, looking back at her with a slight smile on his face. Gotta admit, though, always liked the wild, reckless side of you most. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire. Templum Veneris, the second book of The Ruins of Empire project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. <laughs> City of Geeks, independent new media produced in Idaho.